The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Turn to the bacon. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 9. For those who lead us in worship, thank you from the bottom of our hearts, leading us into the throne of grace with praise. What you are about to hear is the living and abiding word of God. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. We began this journey in Romans on October 7th in the year 2018. Here's the good news. We've traveled halfway through the book. <laughs> we, we have traveled through the greatest letter ever written, the book of Romans. We have spent 146 sermons so far in this book. I said in that first sermon as we started Romans that I wanted to wait to preach this magnificent book until I had turned 50. Mission accomplished. I wanted to wait until I was 50 because although all Scripture is God-breathed, Romans, in a real sense, holds pride of place in the canon of Scripture. It is, it is the Mount Everest of God's Word. It is, as it were, the Holy of Holies. And I felt that waiting until I was 50 would give me a little bit of experience. And so I waited until I had preached over 3,000 sermons before we went to Romans. And I likened Romans in that sermon, that first sermon, to the best meal of the day, breakfast. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something magical about eggs, home fries or hash browns, and bacon, amen. Thanks be to God for the new covenant. (laughs) And I said, 
the way that I eat that breakfast, which, which I love, I'd rather eat that than anything else, maybe besides steak, is you eat the eggs and the potatoes together. And if you have four pieces of bacon, what you do is you, you only take one piece out, you break it into little pieces, and you just occasionally dip it in the yolk and taste it, and it, it, it gives you this sense of eschatological expectation that the bacon is coming. <laughs> and then once everything is, is, is done, and all things have gone as planned, and you don't have little bacon-grubbing bacon twins with you, <laughs> you then eat the rest of the bacon. And I said that Romans is like the bacon, right? You save it till last. And it's not that this is the last book I'm going to preach, and once I get to chapter 16, I'm going to fall over dead. That might happen, but let's hope not. But there's something that's climactic about the book of Romans, and we've dipped into it over the years, lots and lots and lots of times. And so all those sermons are like that one little piece of bacon that we broke up into little bits to dip in the yolk here and there. Now now what we have on the plate is, is the bacon. And so on October 7th, 2018, we examined the influence of the book of Romans throughout church history, which is actually quite remarkable. We looked at, for instance, how God used the book of Romans, in particular chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, to actually save Augustine of Hippo. Remarkable story that I went into great detail on, and Augustine is in great angst. He was a profligate man. He was he was really an immoral man, and he heard the voice of a child. He didn't see the child. He'd never heard these words before sung like this. And he heard this phrase, tole lege, tole lege, which is take up and read, take up and read. And so he was determined to go back to the garden from which he had left. He opened the book, and he opened it to Romans 13, 13 and 14. And he read, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ... And make no provision for the flesh that you would obey its lusts. And God used it to save Augustine, who next to the Apostle Paul would be the greatest theologian in the church's first millennium. We saw how God used the book in the life of Martin Luther. And Luther was, of course, a dedicated Augustinian monk who who looked at that phrase, the righteousness of God, and saw it not as a gift that God gave, but saw it as the, the strict exacting judgment that God brought upon sinners who were in fact not righteous, and what Luther knew about himself, although he was a monk, and could say, if anybody could be saved by monkery, it was me. And he said, love God, I hated him. And then he's in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Luther says, I 
beat upon St. Paul to understand the meaning of the righteousness of God. And then it was as, as if heaven was opened up to me, paradise, so that I saw that the righteousness of God was not the righteousness by which he judged me or the righteousness which he demanded of me, but the righteousness which he freely gave me in Jesus Christ. I dare say that history changed because of the book of Romans in the life of Martin Luther. Two centuries later, a frustrated missionary, a failure, a total failure, a self-righteous hypocrite had gone to Georgia to try to convert the Indians and On his way back, he's with a group of Moravians on the ship, and he says, as I listen to them talk about Jesus, I realize that that I was the one that needed to be converted. And he went down to Aldersgate Street in London, and he heard somebody reading of all things, Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And that was John Wesley. And he said, and as he read, my heart was strangely warmed and I came to enter the gates of paradise. I wish Wesley would have paid better attention to Romans 9, but be that as it may. We talked about how God used a little-known Scotsman, Robert Haldane, Wealthy landowner, he and his brother James are converted to Christ. They have plans to be missionaries to India. Those plans are thwarted. They cannot get to India. And so they started to realize what we need to do is we need to convert the heathen of Scotland. As William Longshanks once said, the problem with Scotland is that it's filled with Scots. And James and Robert Haldane began to evangelize their own people, began to establish Bible chapels, began to produce and publish and produce Bibles and to promote those Bibles. And then Robert Haldane had the idea that he would go to Geneva, Calvin City. And as he started talking to the seminary students there, he began to realize they didn't know anything about the gospel. They didn't know anything about the Bible. And so Robert Haldane started a Bible study in his apartment with 30 theological students. And what he did is he taught them the book of Romans. And those Bible studies in the book of Romans to those 30 theological students in a little apartment actually was used by God to bring revival to Europe. Romans is awesome. (laughs) We looked at comments from a multitude of theologians, scholars, pastors, both past and present, that speak of Romans' massive impact in terms of changing lives and reviving and reforming the church. For us... Romans 1 through 8 has been a marvelous journey. And now we come to the last half of the book, chapters 9 to 16. 
The last half, 9 to 16, is divided into two major parts, 9 through 11 and 12 to 16. Chapters 12 to 16 give us the practical duties that Christians have to one another within the body of Christ. It's actually an incredibly rich section of what the gospel looks like when it's put into practice in the local church. Paul concludes, starting about 1513, with his own missionary plans, his hope for support, and then he gives an impressive list of greetings in Romans 16. What's interesting is that it isn't until we get to Romans 15 that we see the very purpose for which Paul sent the letter, which was to get missionary support. I dare say that Romans ends up being the best, the greatest missionary letter ever written. But that leaves us this question. What about Romans 9 through 11? You get to Romans 9 through 11, you know that the three chapters hang together for sure. But you have to say, so what's, what's the purpose of 9 through 11? What is, what is Paul actually doing in these chapters? And by the way, these chapters end up being among the most controversial in the whole Bible, especially Romans chapter 9. What if Romans 9 through 11 weren't in the book of Romans? What I want you to do is I want you to take your Bible and look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at the last two verses, which are precious to us. Paul says, Romans 8, 38, 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, flip over to chapter 12. So just remember, I am convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let me just ask you a question. Doesn't it actually seem to to, uh, just seamlessly flow as you end with, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, brethren, I urge you, in view of God's mercies... I mean, actually, if Romans 9 through 11 wasn't there, nobody would say, shouldn't there be something in between? It flows. It makes sense. But if it were true that 9 through 11, just, you could just take it out, doesn't matter. If you did that, you would fail to address the big, giant elephant in the room, okay? 
So we use that phrase, the elephant in the room. I was going to make that the sermon title, but um, that was after I already gave you the other sermon title, which is actually no longer the sermon title. I would have called this sermon the elephant in the room. Because in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is doing something, and he's doing something that is incredibly vital, not secondary, but vital to his argument in Romans. And so we ask again, what in the world is Romans 9, 10, and 11 all about? And in order to answer that question, what we're going to do is we're going to do Romans 1 through 8 all over again so that we know why Paul does 9 through 11. What we'll do is an outline of Romans 1 through 8. So be ready to turn to a few passages in Romans. So Paul opens this letter. So just want to remind you what I'm doing. I'm giving you an overview of 1 to 8 so it sets up a better understanding of what Paul's doing in 9 through 11. All right? So Paul opens the letter in 1, 1 to 17. And he begins with a typical salutation. Actually, it's not typical. It's remarkable. Glorious salutation, Romans 1, 1 to 7. And then Paul goes into his, his normal thanksgiving and then ex- expression of a desire to make an apostolic visit. But then in verse 16, he gets to what we could consider the theme of what he's about to talk about. Now, let me tell you why he gives you the theme where he does. Because he says in 14 and 15, I'm a debtor to Jews and Greeks, to slave and free, etc. I'm a debtor to do what? To give them the gospel, right? I have an obligation to dispense the gospel. By the way, if you are a Christian, you are a debtor. God has shown you free grace that you did not deserve, and you owe others who don't yet know that grace to hear about that grace, okay? So Paul says, I'm a debtor because of the gospel. Then he says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is another way of saying what? I feel courageous for the gospel, right? Not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, so that just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's the theme. The gospel of God's righteousness. Then what Paul does in one eighteen through 425 is he talks about the revelation of God's righteousness. So understand the way that this works. 117, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Then Paul immediately shifts to 118 where he says, for the wrath of God is being revealed. 
from heaven against all forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so Paul's going to be talking about the revelation of God's righteousness. And that revelation of righteousness is both unto salvation and unto judgment. And so what Paul does is from 118 to 320, he labors to show that everybody is under sin right? So pagans are under sin, um, religious, moral people are under sin, and Jewish people are under sin. So that the climax of his argument in, in that section ends up being this, keeping the law and being circumcised doesn't do anything for you before God. Can't save you. Put it this way, being good can't save you. Following the law of God, being of the tribe of, of, being of the people of Abraham, having the mark of the covenant in your body doesn't save you. Everybody's under sin. You know what that means? All of us come into this world under sin. We come into this world born in sin. We come into this world under the judgment of sin. And then Paul opens up the gates of paradise. He goes from we're all under sin to righteousness through justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the law, is your hope. You know, there's an interesting progression, right? What does Paul do? He convinces people that they're lost before he shows them what it means to be saved. Oftentimes today, we never never want to get too much into detail about what it means to be lost, what it means to be under the judgment of God, what it means to be under sin, what it means to be a slave to sin. We just want to get to the good stuff. Let me just tell you, the good stuff isn't good stuff unless you know the bad stuff. When you know the bad stuff, the good stuff gets gooder. All you homeschool kids, that's not a real word. And so Paul lays out this beautiful picture in Romans 3, 21 to 31 about a righteousness that comes through justification in Christ apart from the law, by faith alone. And then chapter 4, he gives us really one prime Old Testament example, then buttressed by another Old Testament example, and that is Abraham and then David. And so both Abraham and David are Old Testament examples of justification by faith alone. Then he goes to five. 1 through 839. And we could call this section the provision of God's righteousness through justification in Christ. So you have the revelation of God's righteousness, and now you have the provision of God's righteousness through justification in Christ. And so in 5, 1 to 11, Paul outlines for us beautifully, powerfully, in some ways surprisingly, the fruits of God's justifying grace. And then Paul moves to what might be considered a peculiar passage, 5, 12 to 21. And in 5, 12 to 21, what Paul does is he gives us 
he gives us a biblical worldview that there are, there are two great realities because there are two, two people that stand over all of human history, Adam and Christ. And in 5.12 to 21, Paul is going to demonstrate to us very clearly, so you can think of it this way, Paul is now showing us incontrovertibly why we need free justification through Christ. Because in Adam, we all sinned. In other words, Adam's sin was imputed, charged to our account. And then Adam and his fallen nature is passed down to all his posterity. So we come into this world with Adam's sin imputed to us. And you go, I don't like that. It doesn't sound fair. <laughs> well, two things. One, God doesn't care what you think is fair. Okay? We're going to see that in Romans 9. God does actually not take your opinion into account as he establishes his divine purposes. Okay? And by the way, if he did, I would question whether that was really God. Okay? So, you know, I don't like that, it's not fair. So, by the way, if you don't like the, the imputation of Adam's sin to our account by which we're condemned, then you must equally not like the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account by which we're saved. Okay? You can't have one without the other. Adam and Christ stand and fall together. And so, Paul labors in some of the most some of the most um, detailed logic of the epistle to demonstrate to us that in Adam we died, in Adam we sinned, in Adam we sinned, and therefore we died. And it is in Christ that we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So if you're only in Adam, you're under condemnation, and you're, you're on your way to the death penalty, and if you are in Christ, you've been justified and you've been given life by grace that now reigns. And so then that leads Paul to a discussion on union with Christ, right? You see how he gets there, it's pretty easy. In Adam and then in Christ, now he's gonna talk about what it means to be in Christ. And so, in a sense, the fruit of being in union with Christ is seen in chapter six, where Paul now talks about, because we're in union with Christ, that is, when Christ died, we died. When Christ was buried, we were buried. When Christ was raised, we were raised to walk in newness of life. Now, what that means is that union with Christ means now our relationship to sin is now radically different. It's radically different like this. You're dead to sin and alive to God. And what Paul does in Romans 6, 1 through 11, is he doesn't, he doesn't give you one single command. He just bombards you with the truths of what God has done because of our union with Christ. Not until he gets to 12, 13, and 14 that he actually tells us, in, in essence, something like this. So because, because you've died with Christ, because you've been made alive to God, because you're in union with Christ, therefore, 
stop presenting the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness. In other words, be who you are. Live as you have been made alive. Romans 6, absolutely magnificent. We'll preach it again sometime before I die, Lord willing. Further fruit of being in union with Christ, dead to the law. And so what Paul does is in three chunks, basically explains how we're dead to the law because of Christ. Now we can bear fruit by the Spirit. That's one through seven, and then, or one through six, then seven through 14. Paul talks about how the law functioned in him before he was a believer, and then 14 to 25, how the law actually now functions in his life as a believer, and then he closes that section, which may lead us to despair if he hadn't done this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So does the law continue, for me as a believer, does the law continue to show me my sin? The answer is yes. Does the reality of God's perfect standard remind me that the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I hate, I end up doing? Oh, does, does not God's word expose so much in, in these redeemed hearts? Amen. Right? And so, but that's not Paul's, it's not Paul's end, right? He's, he's, he starts to close that section with who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so does the law beat us up? And the answer is yes. Is it good for us to get beat up sometime? And the answer is yes, provided that you run straight back to Christ. If I never get beat up by the law, I never see actually how deep my need is for the Savior. Okay? So then that brings Paul into the great eight, the great Romans eight, which if Romans is the bacon, Romans 8 is the, don't listen to this, Tim, is the little fat along the edge of the bacon, all right? So good. (laughs) Romans 8 is absolutely magnificent, but in a sense, Romans 8 just sort of continues the fruit of being in union with Christ, and so you could call Romans 8 broadly alive in the spirit in Christ, And so Paul talks about deliverance by Christ apart from the law through the Spirit, Romans 8, 1 to 4. And then Paul sets up two mutually exclusive realms, flesh, spirit. You live in the flesh, you're going to die. You live by the spirit, spirit. You put to death the deeds of the body, you live. And then Paul speaks gloriously. Not only of the obedience that we render to God by the Spirit, but he speaks gloriously of us being adopted into the family of God. Once a son, always a son.
once a daughter, always a daughter. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, whereby we now cry, Abba, Father. Mm. Then Paul gives us one last section, present confidence in the Spirit, and it goes like this, 26 and 27, present confidence in the Spirit in prayer, present confidence in the saving purposes of God, 28 to 30, and present confidence in God in our sufferings, 31 to 39. The climax goes like this, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And every true child of God says, yes and amen, that is my life preserver. Again, you in there? Go right to Romans 12. Hey, piece of cake. But I just ask, in light of Romans 1 to 8, what are the reasons for Romans 9, 10, and 11? Are you ready? You feel slightly primed? <laughs> Some of you need a new spark plug. Reasons for Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 although it may seem to be parenthetical or, for those of you from Tonopah, a rabbit trail, it is not. In fact, there are many truths in Romans 1 to 8 which have been put out there in sort of a teasing fashion. And so, Charles Cranfield says, a closer study, 9 through 11, reveals the fact that there are very many features of chapters 1 to 8 which are not fully understood in their depth until they're seen in Romans 9 through 11. One of those features is the preeminent place that Israel and the Old Testament play in Paul's gospel. The church in Rome was predominantly Gentile. There was a Jewish component in the church at Rome, but it was a minority. The majority were Gentiles. And yet... As Paul starts his gospel written to the church at Rome, he says this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now listen, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's what? It's the Old Testament. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So right out of the gate, Paul actually says, what I'm preaching to you was promised in the Old Testament. What I'm 
what I'm preaching to you has an inextricable connection with King David, who was the king of Israel. Then he says things like this. Not ashamed of the gospel's power of God and salvation to all who believe. What's the next line? To the, to the Jew first. Then to the Greek. Hmm. What if I said, the gospel that I'm going to preach to you guys today, I'm going to preach to native Nevadans first, and then to you immigrants. You would say, that sounds, that sounds like discrimination. When Paul says to the Jew first, it's not discrimination, it's redemptive history priority. Paul has not done much to explain why to the Jew first. Then you have, when Paul finally gets to the gospel, 320, he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the gospel of the righteousness of God that I'm preaching to you, the church of Rome, you have to understand something, and that is that this gospel actually is testified to by Moses and the prophets. There are other obvious parts of this feature, if you will. First of all, Paul is a Jew. And yet he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Another obvious thing. Romans is full of Old Testament quotations by which Paul defines his gospel. So Romans deals with the Jewish people and the law repeatedly. He gives us a little teaser in in 3, 1 to 8. What advantage is there then of being a Jew? Great in every respect. So these features demand that questions be asked. And it it is those questions, if you will, that give us the framework for Romans 9 through 11. So so you're starting to see, right? So there's 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 this emphasis on Israel and the Old Testament in the book of Romans that seems to be somewhat unaddressed. In fact, what ends up happening is as you go through those first eight chapters, that emphasis ends up being in a sense unanswered. And so there are going to be people that are scratching their heads and asking two big questions. And the first one goes something like this. If the gospel is so glorious, Paul, as you said in 1 through 8, and if Jesus is Israel's long-expected Messiah, as you said in Romans 1 to 8, and if the gospel is the revelation of the long-awaited righteousness of God, as you've said in Romans 1 through 8, why then didn't more Jews believe? The first problem that starts to frame Romans 9 through 11 is the promise of Jewish unbelief. The Jewish rejection of Messiah and his gospel. 
you, you do understand why that would be a question, would, don't you? Paul, if the gospel's about all this stuff that you just said, Jewish people should be excited. I know you're a Jew, but you're a weirdo. Most Jews don't even believe this stuff. Leads us to a second related problem. And perhaps the most pointed. It's not just Jewish unbelief, but the faithfulness of God. If God has been so gracious to the Gentiles, and if they have received, if Gentiles have received the blessings of Abraham, the blessings of Messiah, the blessings of his spirit, if they have received blessings promised to Israel, if they have received a salvation apart from the law, and they are not as it were, the natural heirs of God's covenant. Then what do we say about God's faithfulness to Israel? It'd be like this. You've got this, let's say you've got this cul-de-sac. And in that cul-de-sac, you have a family who lives at the end. And they have three kids. And then the neighbors two doors down have three kids. And the dad one day says, you know what? You three, that like belong to me. You get out of here. We're taking the other three. Now, it's not that that was never tempting. (laughs) But let's just say, let's just say, let's just say that that happened. Someone would walk by and you'd go, what about your fatherly commitment to your own children? You're, you're, you're taking these kids. Okay, yeah, they're, they're nice kids. They're sweet kids. In, in God's case, what does he do? He takes the Gentiles. So they're, they're a bunch of ugly runts. Okay. So there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing handsome about the Gentiles. And so God takes the goyim. You go, what about the promise you made to Abraham? What about the promises you made to the fathers? What about the covenant that you made with the people of Israel? And so the elephant in the room is not merely Israel's unbelief, that's part of it, but it also has to do with God's faithfulness to Israel. So the elephant in the room could be said like this, if this, Romans 1 to 8, is a true gospel and the gospel of Israel's Messiah, why do so many Jews say no to it and reject it? Does not Israel's rejection of Jesus the Messiah impugn the righteousness and faithfulness of God to Israel? Put a different angle on it. Charles Cranfield, if, and this is, this is far more pointed. If the truth is that God's purpose with Israel has been frustrated and it looks that way, then what sort of a basis for Christian hope is God's purpose? So let's say I take those three neighbor kids. 
Would it ever occur to them like, you know what? He kicked out his own kids. I wonder how long we got. And, Cranfield says, if God's love for Israel has ceased as it appears, what reliance can be placed on Paul's conviction that nothing can separate us from the love of God? So the elephant in the room is Israel's unbelief, God shifting to the Gentiles, and the apparent impugning of God's faithfulness to promises that he made to them. And then, by implication, what does that mean for us? Those are questions that are asked by someone who understands the flow of redemptive and covenant history. So what's Paul going to do? I have no time left, so let me not tell you. No. (laughs) Romans 9 through 11, Paul is going to vindicate both the righteousness and the faithfulness of God. Now, the way he's going to vindicate the righteousness of God, which, by the way, is called a theodicy, all right? Theodicy is is to justify God, as it were, is what he's going to do to do that is he's going to explain where Israel fits in the sovereign purpose of God and the place of the Gentiles in relation to that purpose. And he will, in fact, explain Israel's unbelief and he will vindicate God's love and faithfulness to both Jew and Gentile. So you can think of Romans 9 through 11, something like this. God's righteousness vindicated. Paul explains the plan of Israel and the purpose of God. And how does he do that? He does it in three primary ways as the passage unfolds. One, God's sovereign election according to grace, Romans 9, 1 to 29. That is a huge answer to the dilemma. Second, the purpose of Israel's rejection of the gospel. 9.30 through 11.10. And then, listen carefully, the salvation of both Gentiles and Jews in Romans 11, 11 to 36, as the consummation of God's saving purposes in the world. Hmm. God is never unrighteous. And God is never unfaithful. But he himself is the one who gets to define what that means. 
So all in all, Romans 9 to 11 is critical to the book of Romans because it will end up crystallizing several themes related to God's righteousness and his faithfulness, especially in light of his covenant with Israel. And it will vindicate the purposes of God and will show how God is faithful to both Gentiles and to Jews in his great redemptive promise. And by the way, it will do one more thing. It will prepare us for the exhortations to ethnic unity in Romans 12 to 15. What Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 is the platform by with, with, with which he urges ethnic unity in the church at Rome. That's the introduction. Now I'm going to get to the text. <laughs> Not really. I'll wait till next week. But I just want to point something out as we bring this to a close. To begin this magnificent section, Paul not only begins with the elephant in the room, Israel's unbelief, but he also begins with his nearly unbearable grief for the unbelief of his kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul does not dismiss that. Paul doesn't say, well, God has his elect, so Israel be damned. He says, my heart is crushed as I think about the privileges of my people. And I think about their unbelief. He says something that I find almost, almost virtually unspeakable. I wish I myself could be accursed. Damned. Cut off from Christ. For the sake of my kinsmen. According to the now, Romans 9 is going to be tough for some of you. You're going, to, you're going to walk out of here feeling like you tried to swallow a whole chicken. With the bones. But I also want to say, Romans 9 is going to humble us. If you come to Romans 9 with a proud heart, you'll be like, that's not what that means. Pride rails against the sovereignty of God. You come to Romans 9 with a humble heart, you will be humbled. Romans 9 is going to humble us because it undoubtedly will show us God is God. And then Romans 9 will put us in our place. Now, I don't know about you. I don't always feel comfortable when someone tries to put me in my place. Even if she does wear a black hat and a red scarf. 
man, there is something inside of me that just, don't do that to me. Romans 9 is going to kick your pride in the gut three times while you're down after kicking you the first time to put you down. And then God, by the way, is not overly gentle when he goes to put you in your place. Because in that day, the Lord alone will be exalted and the pride of man will be abased. And so Romans 9 gives us the beauty, the power, the compelling argument, not only of God's sovereignty, but also of God's mercy. And so Romans 9, far from pushing us from despair, should drive us to an utter dependence upon God because God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. And there is something marvelously liberating. And some of you have experienced this liberation firsthand. There is something marvelously liberating being brought to that place where you say, you're the potter. And what am I? I'm the co-potter. <laughs> no. It's a little more humiliating than that. God's the potter. You and I Pieces of clay. Will the clay speak back to the potter and say, Why'd you make me like this? Absolutely not. And so Romans 9 is going to be so good for us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look forward to seeing little dead pride carcasses laying on the floor as you leave on the Lord's day. And I'll rejoice, and so will you, that the sovereign God of both Israel and all the nations of the earth is glorified because he alone is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Romans 9, 10, and 11. We pray that it be a rich feast for us. And Father, I want to pray right now for the person who's sitting here and he resents that he's clay. God, even today, humble him unto salvation in Christ Jesus to rejoice that you alone are the potter. Receive our praise. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.